Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. On today's episode, I talk with Michael Tonsmere, whatever you want to call him, Old Sock, the mad fermentationist, and the soon-to-be proprietor of Sapwood Cellars. Well, we talk about how he doubles up his brew day to get two different styles of juicy beer with both an apricot-infused sour and a hazy New England IPA from one boil. So sit back, grab your favorite juicy concoction, and let's get to learning. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Welcome back, everybody. This is another episode of the Brew Files Recipe Design, and I'm here again with good old Mr. Michael. Mr. Michael, introduce yourself to the crowd. Yo, uh, Michael Tonsmeyer, the Mad Fermentationist, themadfermentationist.com. I'm the advanced uh, brewing writer for Brew Your Own Magazine. I have done a bunch of consulting work for different breweries, uh, most recently Commonwealth Brewing in Virginia Beach to a couple of great dark sours and i all around fun nerdy beer dude indeed and if you haven't followed uh, mike's blog at the mad fermentationist you're missing out because there's always something new and fun mike we're going to talk really kind of one of my favorite aspects of recipe design i think something that a lot of people don't think a lot about and that is kind of taking one brew day and getting a little bit more out of it why why you introduce us here to the hop juice and where we're going with it sure um, one of my favorite things to do in the last couple of years since I stepped up to 10 gallons is to get a clean beer and a sour beer out of the same brew day. And that has the advantage that, you know, hey, you're brewing an IPA and everyone loves fresh, bright, 
fruity, cloudy, New England-style IPA. Right, Drew? Uh, let's talk to Denny about that juicy idea. But one of the big problems with these beers is that they do not age well. By the time I'm kicking that keg six to eight weeks after brew day, if all goes to plan, the beer is delicious – that beer is already sort of starting to tail down. And the last thing I want is another keg of that same beer that has been sitting in, in my fridge, or if I didn't have space, my basement, uh, for two months, and the hop character is mostly gone. And so one of the best things you can do is just pull off five gallons of that beer before you add hops, after maybe just the bittering hops, before the boil, you know, just figuring out that timing that works for the two beers that you're trying to create. So the base beer for this one sort of, and this is one of the tricks with brewing two different beers, is there's always a little bit of a compromise. It's very rare that you're going to get exactly what you would have planned for for both beers. And you can mitigate that a little bit by picking two beers that fit well together. You know, if, if, you're, if one needs to be super, super, super fermentable and one needs to be really unfermentable, that's a little hard. I mean, you can start playing around with, you know, adding maltodextrin. You can do all sorts of other, you know, do a side mash, cap it, blend it, whatever. But for ease, I tend to look for two beers that are going to have similar fermentability. So where I usually like to mash very hot for a, uh, a traditional long-age sour beer, save the sugars for the pediococcus pretemices to a lower, a lesser extent for after fermentation, uh, primary fermentation. For quick sours, I'm fine. You know, they don't really need to be that unfermentable compared to sort of a standard wort. So I decided to pair a New England style. Is actually, I think, my first sort of legally New England style uh, IPA, even though I'm from New England, <laughs> with uh, a beer that was then fermented with just lactobacillus followed by Britannomyces. Well, and, and I just wanted to take a brief break here and say that, uh, I mean, I think like you, I did the same thing where I got really excited when I first moved into my into my first house and. And I told myself, wow, I can I can upgrade now. I can make 10 gallons at a time. That would be awesome. And then I quickly found, I think, just like you, is like, I don't want 10 gallons of the same beer. Yeah, I have, I've actually, I've gone as high as 15 from a single. I've, I've done, I'll run off a Berliner pre-boil and dilute it down to the, the target I'm looking for, add hops, boil it for 60 minutes. Hey, there's my Saison with 30 IBUs. Then after I run that out, okay, here comes the big flame addition, the Whirlpool addition to up that bitterness and aroma. Great, that's the IPA. Mm-hmm. More often than not, I'm just doing two split batches or two two batches from one. And part of that is your, your day starts getting pretty long, you know, chilling three beers separately, having enough yeast to pitch three completely different beers, you know, three different mm-hmm. starters, whatever um, might have. So I'm actually going to look at this one, I guess, a little bit sort of backwards. I'm going to talk about the sour beer first because that was the beer that was run out first so this one again it's going to have a little bit lower original gravity than the ipa because it's going to have less boil time so you're going to boil off less uh, less water you're going to concentrate those sugars less so start at 1052 zero ibus there was not a single pellet of hops on the hot side and it was a, a relatively simple grain bill i think um, mostly american two-row brewer's malt rar um, i'm a big fan of their malts they do good stuff I was looking for this beer that was brewing this in the summertime, drink in the summertime, so rather than the sort of traditional uh, wheat or oats or something like that that you often see in New England IPA, I went with a pound of flake maize, corn. And this is, uh, I think, a little bit of a point where a lot of brewers um, assume that adding corn is the same as adding a simple sugar like, like glucose, sucrose, and it really isn't. Um, what you're doing is you're adding starch, just like the starch that's in malt, 
is then being acted upon by those same enzymes that are in malt. They're turning those long chains of essentially glucose molecules into glucose, maltose, maltotriose, and, and dextrins as well. Mm-hmm. What it's mostly doing is diluting out that malt flavor. You're, you're cutting the malt flavor. You're cutting the proteins down. And in this case, honestly, I really don't think that 8% flake maize did a whole lot. You know, sort of my idea was to have it a little lighter, a little uh, a little snappier than um, a lot of New England IPAs can be a little heavy, a little sweet, a little um, full-bodied. Well, and I also find, though, depending upon what you pair it up with, sometimes with maize, you almost get a honey, a caramel type uh, thing from the corn that you're not getting from your oats or your wheats. It's a slightly different sort of sweetness. Oh, exactly, and 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 it can be very bright and crisp, and 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 have a um, yeah that corny flavor that we associate with um, you know sweet sweet corn. So all of that, a little bit of carapils, six percent. I don't know how much you want to get into carapils, but there are really very different sorts of carapils. Mm-hmm. Brees carapils is a crystal malt. It is glassy. It is crunchy. I use Vireman Carapils, Carafoam in this country. It's Carapils everywhere else, but they didn't get the copyright. And that is much more like a chit malt. It's it's an undermodified malt. And um, mm-hmm. whether or not, honestly, I, I don't think Carapils as well doesn't have a huge impact as far as I'm concerned. Um, and again, when you're adding something that has a bunch of dextrins in it and it's being acted upon by those enzymes, it's being converted into a lot of simple sugars. Um, the the wireman's probably having the reverse impact of that corn. It's undermodified. It has more proteins. They're sort of going to balance out, hopefully with a net effect of being a little bit better head retention. To take that even further, I added a quarter pound of King Arthur all-purpose wheat flour. And this was uh, every once in a while, like I I, I'm not one of those sort of science sciencey nerds that thinks just because something's in a study automatically it makes better beer. But I bumped into an old review of head retention, and it said that according to some study that was done in 1940 something, the proteins found in wheat flour in particular, even above and beyond other forms of wheat, are particularly head positive. And so I was looking for a big, creamy, full head for both the IPA and the sour beer if I could get it. And so hey. Why not? This is my first time trying it. I threw in a quarter pound to the mash. It did make the mash a little bit stickier than I expected, um, but a, a little bit of uh, rice hulls fixed that. I stirred those in partway through and just a little bit of acid malt to deal with the uh, head retention issues. Uh, I'm sorry to deal with the, um, the the pH issues with my local water. My local water tends to have a lot of carbon in it. Um, I dilute it, in, in this case, 50% with distilled water to bring that carbonate number down from 100-ish to 50-ish. Personally, I... I Water chemistry is something that I don't think is worth talking about in super precise terms because unless you're doing specific readings on your water in the kettle on brew day, you don't really know exactly what you're getting. You can sort of use you know, your, your yearly average or your monthly average uh, from your local municipality. But honestly, even if you had that, I'm not sure you know, that 10 or 15 parts per million of chloride or sulfate or whatever is particularly relevant. I'm not a big fan of talking about those in terms of a ratio either. People say, oh, do you want two to one sulfate or one to one? Well, there's a huge difference between 10 parts per million sulfate and five parts per million chloride and 500 parts per million sulfate and 250 parts per million chloride. Those are both two to one, but the raw numbers themselves, I think, are more relevant and and 
to, to your palate. You know, your palate isn't tasting a ratio. It's tasting these two molecules. Well, you're kind of dealing with an integration, right? So you got both your level, okay, your, your raw total, and then some sort of balance ratio between the two. So, yeah, I think you're right. If you're not talking about them together, you're sort of losing half the picture. Exactly. And, and so if you're talking about maybe a total number, then you can talk about ratios. If you're talking about um, just the ratio, I, I think it's, it's, it's less relevant. Um, in this case, both because I was doing a New England IPA and because chloride is particularly uh, body positive, that's really something that's nice for a sour beer. Um, sour beers can be very thin. I was doing 100% Brett fermentation on this. Brettanomyces doesn't produce uh, glycer glycerin, glycerol like many brewers yeast do. So you're going to lose out on some of that body and mouthfeel even if the body, even if the gravity doesn't drop maybe as low as a traditional sour beer, having 100, 150 parts per million of chloride, I think is a, is a positive attribute for um, a sour beer or, in this case, a New England IPA. And one of the nice things about chloride and sulfate is that they are not really impacting the process in the way that calcium, magnesium, carbonate do. And so you can dose them, you know, into the finished beer or post-fermentation you can do it to you know do some measured samples, taste it, see what impact it has, and then dose in if you want to increase it. But I think like a lot of people, I've figured out what works for my water, my palate, and and particular sets of beers. I kind of have a a routine I go through by default unless I'm really trying to do something for an IPA or a sour beer or or what have you. So for this one, I just boiled the the whole wort, all you know, probably started with 14 gallons or so for half an hour, and then I ran off five gallons. I've gone to, in the last year or so, uh, using an immersion chiller with a recirculation loop, but often when I do these sort of weirder split batches where I'm splitting mid-boil or something, I have a plate chiller, um, and that's relatively easy to run off five gallons and keep the rest going um, without having to either transfer a hot word and then chill it or uh, without having to you know chill the whole thing and then bring it back up to a boil, something like that. And then for this one, um, Whenever I'm souring with just lactobacillus, lactobacillus will eat through, particularly at high temperatures, on its own uh, proteins. And so you end up with a very clear beer, but that has no head retention and, and very little body. Um, if you drop the pH to about four and a half, just a bunch of lactic acid, pH meter ideally, um, something like, you know, three grams per gallon in, in that ballpark um, to get down to four and a half, 4.4, you get that pH nice and low. Pitch a, a big star of lactobacillus. I, actually, I'm sorry, I should say. I pitched the star of lactobacillus first because uh, that will probably lower the pH a little bit, just the acid that was created in the starter, and take a pH ring, then dose in your lactic acid to get that 4-4 four, four, four or so. 24 hours later, I'm sorry, so I, I ran off at about 90 degrees, give that lactobacillus a little bit of a head start. I used the Omega Labs lactobacillus blend, which is terrific. It sours in a jiffy. It is clean, it's, it's consistent, it's reproducible. I have not tried to grow or capture my own lactobacillus in a long time now that there are some excellent strains available. I don't think it's worth the risk and the effort of using um, you know, grain or trying to make a starter off of something. Um, there are great probiotics out there, too, that would work. Um, Good Belly, a few others. Anything labeled uh, lactobacillus brevis, lactobacillus plantarum, those are great strains to look for. In this case, zero IBUs because zero on the hot side because the lactobacillus is very hop sensitive. You can add three IBUs if you want, but you're not tasting three IBUs. So why risk the lactobacillus performance over 
what's not going to be tasted at all. When, when we talk about hops and the preservative powers, we're really talking about mostly lactobacillus. And even if you get to the sourness to start picking up, and then it, it might stop because as pH drops, the uh, potency of the uh, hops antimicrobial compounds increases exponentially. And so if you, uh, you know, have five IBUs and you pitch lactobacillus and it gets down to a pH of four or 3.8 and you go, well, you know, it's not the hops. It might be. It still might be. So for this one, uh, the last time I was on, I talked about uh, a dark sour that I aged for a long time and add fruit, you know, way down the road, sort of as a, I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go. With this one, after 24 hours, I pitched Britannomyces and I already knew what I was going to do. I was going to add a whole bunch of apricot puree. I'd been listening to uh, the Sour Hour, the great uh, podcast by the guys at the Rare Barrel and, and Brewing Network. And they kept, I kept bumping in episodes where terrific brewers, whether it was uh, Rare Barrel or Santa Darius or um, Side Project, said that they used apricot puree for these beers that had, you know, fantastic reputations. And the, the two of them I'd had had been fantastic. And so I thought, hey, you know, normally I'm the kind of guy who goes to the local farmer's market, buys fresh fruit. But, you know, I'll give, I'll give this Vintner's Harvest stuff a, a good, you know, a shot. It will certainly be easier um, to add. I'd used fruit puree a few times in the past and hadn't loved the fact that it's very difficult to separate from the beer. And I ran into the same problem here. Um, it just sort of settled out to like, and I, I had a crazy amount. I'm trying to look at, I had um, three 49 ounce cans to four gallons of beer, which is a lot of apricots. It is, you know, like, like 30% apricots by weight, probably something like that. No, it's not quite, maybe 20, 20%, 20% apricots by weight, but that was uh, post-fermentation. I'm sorry, primary fermentation was with East Coast Yeast Dirty Dozen, their 12-bret blend. I was just, you know, you're not going to get a lot of funk out of that, but Brett will have some interesting interactions with fruit, with hops, um, glycosides, biotransformation, all those things. After primary fermentation is done, racked on to the, uh, all that apricot, gave it a little bit of time to ferment out. Big, bold, dry hopping with a couple ounces each of citron amarillo. Um, so this is, you know, somewhere between like a, like a apricot lambic and a double IPA. And that was sort of the idea that the acidity is going to step in for the bitterness of a standard IPA. The fruit and the hops are going to meld together. Apricot uh, can be very Amarillo-like. Citra can be a little danker on its own, but I find it really sort of plays well with Amarillo. Dry hopped it quickly at the end and then bought, uh, kegged it, actually. And um, really, uh, the result was bold. It was, I mean, it's just a... a two by four of fruit and sour and um, big bold dry hop I mean, for, for a beer with um, you know, like a, a four ounce dry hop of citra and Amarillo. It was lightly hoppy when compared to the big apricot flavor. And again, this is the sort of beer that I love, you know, because it's relatively quick, um, love throwing big flavors. At. I don't feel bad that I'm covering up anything. I don't feel bad that I waited a long time to, you know, get the subtlety. I'm brewing a beer intentionally to create this, base for other flavors. And so apricot comes off with sort of just a big, it's kind of that bright sourness and, and everything else. But now, and you said it was citra and amarillo. So you're getting a lot of citrus notes. You're getting a lot of tropical fruit. So yeah, I mean, this must've just been kind of, again, going back to that terrible term, uh, sort of a, a juice bomb. Yeah, it, it very much was. And um, that's to me, the fun of a beer like this is that, you know, there are those times when you want to have 
a beer that is not that is not subtle. That is just a big, bold, the sort of beer that you you pour a, a glass of, and people three feet away, four feet away go, "Oh yeah, I can smell that already." You know, not not a beer that you have to bury your nose in. You know, again, I, I think this process works well because for a long age sour beer, you know, you can't add a bunch of hops early. And this one, you know, I waited until sort of that last moment to add um, the the dry hopping. And so this one went from, so I brewed it on um, May 23rd, I uh, and I kegged it on uh, July 14th. So a little shy of two months. I probably could have pushed it faster if I'd wanted to, but I was really hoping that that nine and a quarter pounds of apricot puree would uh, drop out a little bit more, 2.3 pounds per gallon. It finished at uh, 1008. Um, so, you know, what is that? You know, it's with the apricots, it's a little hard to be too precise, but, you know, five-ish percent alcohol thereabouts and yeah no it it was really fun and that was sort of all going on while the ipa that if we want to jump back to brew day if if you don't have any more questions on this one well one question real quick because i know that you said that when you're doing your chilling for this sort of beer you're using typically a plate chiller uh, so that you don't have to get or counterflow chiller so you don't have to you know uh, siphon the beer off someplace else and chill it with your ic so now you also said you brought it down to 90 degrees. Going through a plate chiller, was that just basically your temperature control plan was to fiddle with the water and the flow rate until you hit 90? Or did you just look out and that's where it came out when you're going at your flow? No, that, that was about my target. I've done um, – normally when I do pure lacto, I'll pitch you know 90 to 100 in that range. But um, I will. I'll, I'll just sort of fiddle around with it, You know, keep an eye on the temperature. You generally, I, I have um, a Blickman plate chiller. You need to run the water pretty damn slow and the beer pretty damn fast to hold temperatures that high. But the fact that this was summertime and I'm in DC and my tap water is only about 80 degrees um, that time of year certainly helps. Just like here in LA. But that's that's one of the reasons I don't like the plate chiller generally is I'm normally not pitching at 90 degrees. Exactly. And then I forget, did you cover... After you pitch the lacto, you obviously you want to keep it warm for a while. No, so honestly, I, I left it at about eighty, so not you know not quite that hot. But um, lactobacillus works pretty damn fast. If you've ever made yogurt, you know it, it's pretty sour by twenty four hours later, and you've got you know starting at ninety, and you're pitching a nice big starter of lactobacillus, and um, it was down to uh, let's see, uh, twenty four hours. I got down to three three pH, and you didn't do anything to hold on to the temperature. There was no like wrapping the carboy in blankets or. No, if if it was wintertime or something like that, I probably would have resorted to uh, something like that. But um, not, 80, honestly, lactobacillus will work cooler, just not as fast. And because it's so quick anyway, it doesn't need much encouragement. But if after 24 hours, it's still at high threes pH, you could certainly give it a little more time. The other thing here is I didn't pasteurize it or anything like that. Just I, I let it sort of naturally keep on cooling um, after it hit. After I pitched, I just moved it to a, a slightly cooler spot, 63 ambient, and let it sort of naturally come down. We have a big fruit juice bomb, mm-hmm. yeah, nice and juicy, and now we're on to the juicy IPA. Yeah, so back back to, hey, it's been 30 minutes. I'm, I turn off the boil. I run off this five gallons after five minutes. Then I add my, uh, my bittering hop, 1.38, one in three-eighths ounces of magnum hops. Not a huge... Bittering charge, 55 IBUs, something like that. Um, it's actually a little bit higher than I actually do these days for my New England IPAs, but this is my first one. And then um, my personal outlook is I do not add, if if I'm doing a beer that's going to be really hoppy, an IPA, a pale ale, a double IPA, anything like that, 
I don't add any more hops until flame out. I've just found that for my palate, I don't get anything from the 5, 10, 15, 20-minute editions. They are just sort of bowled over by what in this case was two ounces each of Simcoe and Galaxy at flame out. And I'll let them sit there in the, um, the hot wort as you would at a commercial brewery for 20 minutes, half an hour, or something like that. Wetting those, you know, sort of like you're making tea, you're letting them infuse into that hot wort. And for my part, that's where I get that sort of sticky coating hop flavor that sort of fills your mouth on every sip. That's just straight flame out. You turn off the kettle, add the hops, give it a quick stir, walk away. Exactly. I've played around with the pre-chilling a little bit, and I found that I didn't get the, the character I was looking for. I think if you're adding that 5 or 10 or 15-minute edition, maybe then the 180-degree whirlpool would give you give maybe another dimension or something like that. But for me, I like that, you know, that straight-off-the-boil, you know, hot infusion character. But honestly, I don't go crazy with those additions because a lot of those aromatics get blown off during primary fermentation. They're adding, again, that saturated sort of hop flavor, but they're not going to give you that big, bold hop aroma that, for me, can only come from dry hopping. And in this case, and, and one of the sort of keys as for, for these New England beers is contact with fermenting beer. So sort of the old classic Vinicolorzo, you know, best, best way to use your hops is to wait until the beer is done fermenting, clear as much of the yeast as you can, and then use the, the beer as a solvent. Use the alcohol as a solvent to extract hop aromatics. Those hop aromatics that you get that smell like opening a fresh bag of hops. That you're going to get some green, some you know, some bright, lively, fresh, you know, hop flavors. To me, one of the key things for the New England IPA is to dry hop when you've still got, you know, maybe 10 points of gravity left to ferment before you're, um, before you're done. So step, stepping back a second, um, why yeast London 3 to me is one of the best yeast to use for these New England IPAs. It has this great synergy with hop aromatics. It may or may not be the yeast that some of those New England breweries are using. Obviously, uh, the Alchemist and Conan, but you know, other ones have been been said to use Dry English 007 or uh, even Cal Ale. I mean, there there are a whole variety. Uh, SO4 if you want to use dry yeast. But for me, London Three doesn't completely obscure the hop character. To me, Conan can sort of take almost any hop and turn it into a Conan IPA. And one in three leaves a little bit of that, the hops natural, distinct varietal kind of character intact. So a couple days go by, I had the dry hops. So that was day four. So I brewed on the 23rd, the 27th, I dry hopped with three ounces of galaxy. And normally I tend to do kind of the same combo of hops at flame out the first dry hop. And then in the keg, but sort of as a caveat to that, I also like dry hopping in the keg with whole hops. Um, I just feel like you get a little less pellety flavor, a little less um, gunk makes it through whatever you've bagged them when, with, when you use whole hops. It's pretty hard to get whole Galaxy. I did once directly ordered from Australia. They were awful. So I just had Galaxy pellets. So I, I use those for primary. You don't have to wait them. They get you know probably a little quicker extraction, a little more recirculation with the fermentation activity. Five days later, I kegged. I uh, bag up the uh, three ounces of Simcoe, in that case, whole Simcoe. Uh, I use uh, new nylon uh, knee highs. I find that, that that tight mesh, I can just toss them out when they're done. I'll just uh, throw a bunch of glass marbles in it, tie it off so the marbles are sort of off in their own little compartment, stuff the rest of it with whole hops, 
tie it around so that the whole thing will stay submerged. I don't tie it off or anything. It just stays in there for the month and a half or so it's going to be on tap. Drop it in, purge three times with CO2, rack the beer in, close it up, purge again. Again, these beers, you know, the arch nemesis is oxygen. Um, New England IPAs in particular, if they're not packaged well, can turn really quickly off colors, off flavors. Um, this is where you want to burn a little extra CO2 just to make sure that everything is as oxygen-free as possible. I tend not to shake carb these because they've got the hops in there. And honestly, I'm okay giving the, a beer like that you know, a couple of days to clarify for that the last addition of hops in the keg to infuse a little bit to have some of the yeast drop out, all those kinds of things. Some brewers talk about not wanting to crash these beers down to, if you are the sort of person who likes to cold crash down below zero, that you might be dropping out, pulling out some of those hop aromatics along with the yeast. I don't know if there's any truth to that. I really don't cold crash many beers anyway. I just sort of let the yeast that wants to fall out, fall out in the keg and then get pulled out in the first pint or two. And then, yeah, it just, it really, it's, And, you know, I'm sure part of it is just perception, but, you know, looking at that photo of that beer with that orange juice-like body, and I think now, you know, anytime I see an IPA that is crystal clear, it says to me that this beer is probably not fantastic, that this was probably over-filtered, stripped out, you know, flavors are gone, maybe, you know, oxidized, or it's been sitting there a long time. And that isn't to say that this beer, because it's cloudy, has more delicious hop air max or any of that. But to me, the goal is to, I forget who said this, but sort of the, the goal isn't to make a cloudy beer. The goal is to make a beer with this beautiful, bright, fresh, juicy hop flavor. And the result of that tends to be cloudier beers. And exactly why it's cloudier is still up for debate. I stopped by um, at Trillium last time I was up visiting my parents in Boston. Um, I've known the head brewer, JC, for uh, since we were just a couple of random homebrewers, and he was down here on a business trip uh, for his his old job. And he was talking about, you know, some of the the old guard who have, you know, tweeted and said, you know, relatively nasty things about, you know, that they don't know what they're doing. They don't know, you know, how to brew a beer correctly. And he was, you know, showing me yeast cell counts. He was showing me their centrifuge. He was, um, you know, really going into that, you know, this is, they're doing things in a very intentional way, and it is not poorly made beer it is being brewed specifically in this way to get a a hop flavor that you can't get again with that you know stripped out clean cow ale drop all the yeast out um that really and and again he doesn't have a perfect explanation for it but he told me that that sort of the equivalent amount of yeast that's in their packaged beer is like one white labs vial i think i forget if it was in in 20 gallons i think he said but again, it's very little yeast. You know, if you added that much yeast to 20 gallons of water, it's not going to be opaque. It's not going to be cloudy. It's not going to look like juice. It's certainly not yeast-free, but it's also not like a Hefeweizen or anything like that. And that's, to me, kind of the magic of these beers. And, and one of the best arguments for brewing your own beer at home is that you can try these beers as fresh as they should be. Um, if you And now places are popping up all over the country, including the West Coast, they're doing this style of IPA. But... As a home brewer, you can you know you can be drinking these beers you know two weeks after brewing and have full control over it and you know get to play around with the different yeast characters, the different hop characters, the the interactions, and that to me is really fun and exciting. Well, and I've argued in the past. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not terribly religious about clarity or any other 
beer character that's out there. I mean, I like the hop character in these things, but I've, I've argued in the past what it really feels like a lot of the New England IPA is, is kind of a return to sort of a hop flavor forward pale ale. Because if you look at like a lot of the gravities that you see from these, there are a number of these there in like 1055 to 1060 range, which is kind of yeah. older school gravity levels as opposed to say the modern west coast ipa which is like running in in the 1070s probably also because that the hop character and the glycosides create a sweetness um and i've had a couple of these at nine and a half or ten percent and they are almost undrinkable they are just sugary and sweet and um they don't have as much bitterness as the west coast and they have more sweetness and the fullness of the body and it to me it doesn't work it's funny, I mean, Trillium is really honed in on, you know, almost all their beers are like six and a half to eight or 8.1. That is, you know, they've done a couple a little lower, a couple a little higher, but for the most part, they have figured out that that is the range from pale ale to double IPA in that narrow band um, that works best for them. Um, and this one was 1058. So, you know, not, not too far off that. Now you intimated a little bit earlier as you were discussing this, that you've changed up you know, some of the stuff with the hops as you're doing this, as you've learned more about the style. Can you give any any kind of further tips or like things that you've changed? It was actually less less the hops and more just the grain bill. I've, I've gone to sort of the, the more classic. I've done some with oat malt. I've done um, some that have uh, a little golden naked oats. That I, I like that combo. Yeah, uh, that's quite a really a tasty one. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the popular ones is honey malt. And I, I haven't tried that one yet. I'm not a big honey malt fan in general, but I could see it certainly working at, you know, two or 3%. And, and particularly if you want that real more orange color where this one is a little a little paler than that and then you know it, it i've played around with yeast i've done um the the beer that we drank uh, at uh, national homebrewers when you were walking around was a blend of 1318 and conan i've done uh sac sac the old brett Twa that's been relabeled as a, a saccharomyces that worked really well i have a, a pack of 007 that i'll be using in in a batch of uh coming up I, I forget exactly what the plan is on that one. I, I'm probably going to split that one between – I'm doing a fun beer with Spruce uh, this weekend with a friend. Um, I, I want to do like a Norwegian uh, IPA with um, – I'm sorry, uh, not Spruce, uh, Juniper. It's actually – I thought it was a Spruce tree, but it turns out it is uh, Juniperius virginiana, I hope. <laughs> you hope. Exactly. So it's it's a it's a Juniper, American Juniper, on the uh, fantastic – book uh homebrewers almanac from the brewers at scratch brewing um really they they raved about um this and i was like oh what's oh that's that's that what that tree is in my backyard apparently but i'm going to use uh norwegian kvek the uh the the sort of uh, hot fermented orange flavored that plus some hops plus some juniper and make like a norwegian ipa for half of it and new england ipa for the other half so Again, you know, the, there isn't a single formula for these split beers. And I remember you wrote that fantastic article in BYO, what was that, maybe three or four years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah no, uh, Zymergy. Oh, I'm sorry, Zymergy. Yep. Um, but yeah, no, there, there are so many options on when to split beers. You know, the, I'm, I'm talking sort of a hot side, which is more of a pain, but, you know, you could take two New England IPAs and dry hop them differently or use different yeast to compare, you know, how the yeast changes the hop character or make one one half a New England IPA and one a West Coast IPA with the same hops and, and see how um, how they're different. Yeah, and, and we've had people, for instance, do a New England IPA experiment where they did 1318 versus 1056. Yeah. And I mean, they, and they come out radically different. So there is yeah. something about that particular choice of yeast strain. So what's so odd to me about 1318 is it's a pretty flocculent strain. If you just use it in a clean beer, it drops out. It makes a clear beer. It's you know good for cast conditioning. And when you add those hops 
something happens. And it doesn't sound like it's necessarily the yeast staying in suspension. It's the yeast interacting with the hops in some way. Well, particularly with these these newfangled high oil hops yeah. that we're seeing in the things like the Galaxy and the Mosaic and others. Yeah. No, and that's and to me it's that's one of the great things about being a homebrewer is that you get to be on the cutting edge, you know, that you don't necessarily have to rely on imitating what commercial breweries are doing. Like that's that's what homebrewers have always been. They were the first ones to brew sour beer in America. They were the first ones to barrel age in America. They were the first ones to I'm sure do a Stein beer and a smoked beer and and all these things. And um that you know, I, I think some homebrewers have gotten very um, you know, stuck on styles or stuck on what does this brewery do and asking less exactly what they do, but just taking some inspiration and figuring out how to do on your own. One of the things JC was telling me was that, you know, they didn't set out to brew something like Hetty Topper. They had an English strain that they were going to use for their porter and they tried to use it in an IPA and this is what sort of happened and they've sort of gone from there. The the goal wasn't to, you know, make New England IPA more popular. It was to brew with the ingredients they had available to the palates that they had. And, and that's what I try to do as a home brewer. I'm certainly inspired by beers I drink, but it's pretty rare that I end up trying to reverse engineer a beer and brew it 10 times with the goal of getting closer and closer to the commercial example. I kind of use the inspiration of the commercial example as a jumping off point, And then I do my own thing. I try to make a beer closer to my ideal beer, my, the flavors I want, using the ingredients I have, using my, my equipment, all those things. And so, some of the fun things I'm playing with now with these beers are like dry hopping under pressure. I built myself a spunding valve recently. Rather than just dry hopping in primary, racking to a keg, setting that spunding valve to 15 PSI, letting the yeast work under pressure. And now, rather than those hoppy aromas being flushed out into the air of your basement, they're being held into the, uh, the beer itself. And again, is this a huge difference now? You know, could you get some more results just by adding another ounce of hops? Maybe, but you know, those are the kinds of fun things that you get to play with as a home brewer to figure out, you know, is this worth the effort? Is this going to make your beer better? Is it going to make it more fun to brew? And we'll see. And and one of the other great things about spunding is that then the yeast is scrubbing out any oxygen that you've introduced in the kegging process. Maybe you get another couple of weeks of delicious, bright, fresh, hoppy beer rather than that tail end starting to uh to approach yeah well and if you want instructions on how to build a spinning valve guess what you can find them in experimental homebrewing <laughs> Ooh, excellent <laughs> nice yes. segue got the plug in well i do think arguably the most important part about this and this is part of why we did all stars as well you know is talking about the different approaches there are some people out there who are absolutely addicted to that idea the target shooting of cloning and just like you i'm not one of them i just view beer making as a form of play and i do totally do the same thing it's like look at a beer like say a dupont and go huh that's interesting i want to make something kind of like that yeah and then turn around if you're not playing I think you're doing it wrong. Yeah. No, and 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 to me that's that is you know this is a hobby, it's a fun hobby. Although I will say that I think there is a value in sometimes taking someone else's recipe and doing things that you might not otherwise. Every once in a while, every every 10 batches or so, I try to take some recipe that's well regarded that has more crystal malt than I might have otherwise used or it puts things together in a little bit of a different way and I give it a shot and sometimes it works out well and sometimes I go yep I knew I knew that wouldn't work out well so I'm playing around with the low low dissolved oxygen lager brewing at the moment I'm 
I, you know, I've done done your recipes and Jamil's recipes and Mike McDowell's recipes and Denny's recipes, and you know, every once in a while, you you stumble upon something and it you change your opinion. Um, if all you're doing is singing in that echo chamber of your own head, drinking the the ten beers that you like to brew and rebrewing the same the same recipes the same way you write them, you're not going to grow as much as if you take a chance, do something that isn't you know maybe what you would default to. I think we all end up in those ruts, you know that. We know these six yeast strains, and we love these 15 malts, and I know when I like to add hops for hoppy beers, and I know when I like to pitch microbes for sour beers. Every once in a while, it's healthy to break out of that mold a little bit and do something that you wouldn't have done otherwise. There you go. It's play and challenge yourself. Forever learn. Well, hey, Mike, thank you so much uh, for walking people through you know, really kind of an ideal split uh, brew day and how to get two very, very different beers, although I think it's ironic that they both end up with sort of big, juicy characters to them. Yeah, one one from the hops alone and one from a whole lot of juice. Yeah. So uh, I encourage everybody, you know, we'll have the recipes in our show notes. Uh, we'll have links to everything that you need in order to be able to kind of learn from Mike. And I'll, I guess maybe we'll even include a link to my article about transformations and splitting. But uh, yeah, I, again, really get out there, play and have some fun. And hopefully, uh, hopefully you can make some really interesting beers. And so, Mike, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on the show again. And obviously, we'll have you back because there's more to talk about. <laughs> Only 200 more recipes to go. Woo! Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this trip into a juicy split brew day and, well, really a way to think about getting more beer for your time. You can follow Mike on his blog, try his beers real soon outside of Baltimore, and if you're listening to this as it's released, see him in February at the San Diego BYO Boot Camp. Mention Experimental Brewing in the registration form before December 15th to get $100 off, while enough's a little money to support the show. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrewing forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, funding the treatment and cure of pediatric cancer. And by the way, this is your last call. Pledges collected by 1231 will be donated, and then we're on to our next charity. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files.